0: You're listening to Absolute Empowerment with Coach Jeff Connors on the Sports Objective. Join Coach C, a USA Strength and Conditioning Hall of Famer, every Monday night as he and a variety of guests, including former players, former and current coaches, pastors, and others will discuss relevant issues in coaching today's athlete with the goal of equipping the athlete and those coaching them with the physical, mental, and spiritual armor necessary to live their best life. Here's Coach Connors.
1: Good evening, and welcome to the second week of Absolute Empowerment. Uh, I am retired collegiate strength and conditioning coach Jeff Connors. I am currently on a mission to educate and uplift others in athletics who might need a mentor or a lifeline. Uh, we have a team of former athletes and pastors on standby through armoredlife.org dedicated to that purpose. As I mentioned last week, I grew up the son of a coach in western Pennsylvania where football is a microcosm of life, and it totally consumed me for 50 years. Uh, very specifically where I am in my life right now is uh, referenced in Matthew 10:39, as it stated that whoever finds his life will lose it, and whoever loses his life for my sake will find it, and that's pretty much where I'm at in my life right now. Coaching is a, a very egocentric endeavor at times because you're willing to go to any length to protect your family under duress. Uh, is also consuming to the point of losing sight of the needs of your family beyond uh, them helping you celebrate victories and, and the next bowl journey. Uh, today's guest is former ECU head football coach and ECU Hall of Famer Steve Logan, Coach Logan has decades of experience at every level, including the NFL. Uh, He is well known for his intellect, quick wit, knowledge of fishing, guitar picking, and wine tasting. Uh, He is a man of God and an incredible husband and father. I was fortunate to be a member of his staff for an extraordinary decade of experiences. Coach, welcome to the
0: show. Well, how are you doing, Jeffrey? Uh,
1: I'm doing very well, and I'm excited about this new opportunity. And uh, I think we can bring a lot of interesting guests to the show. But uh, I certainly am very thankful that you agreed to come on, and so uh, I'm very anxious to discuss a few things. And so I'm going to preface our discussion and some of the questions that I have for for you with a few things. So. I guess what I want to say first is uh, I never would have landed at East Carolina if it wasn't for you and our mutual relationship with Ronnie Jones of the Philadelphia Eagles. So that was, uh, that was an interesting uh, sequence of events uh, when Bill Lewis called me and I really didn't have any idea who Bill Lewis was. And then I didn't hear from him for about another month and a half. And then he Uh, called me again, and invited me to ECU for an interview. So, uh, uh, of course, I'll always be thankful for your influence there because it uh, ended up to be a great experience for me, of course.
0: Well, I'll tell you the background on that. I think I've told you once, uh, maybe not, um, one of the other guys on the staff that you, you know, Dave Huxtable, he really had bill Lewis's ear at the time when that initial staff all came together. And, uh, he went to bill and he knew a guy that was coming out of the Nebraska strength, you know, family. And at the time that was the deal, right? Nebraska, Nebraska strength training. They were kind of the, at the forefront of all that. And, uh, I had given your name, uh, to bill because of Ronnie Jones, who I'd worked with at the University of Tulsa. And um, Bill was all in on the Nebraska guy. And uh, he was all, but in fact, Bill hired him. And at the last minute, they found out that that guy did not have his master's degree. <laughs> and that, that in the job posting you, it was a required master's master's degree position and uh, so all of a sudden Bill came down the hallway and he was really distraught and uh, telling everybody that oh my goodness we lost the best strength coach on the planet who he didn't even know of course (laughs) and uh, I came up out of my chair and I said look call this guy because you know I, I had been in touch with Ronnie and people don't realize this was 1990." Yeah, 1990. And this was back when strength coaching really wasn't um, it wasn't at the forefront of program development at the time. Right. And I'm going to pat myself on the back a little bit. In 1984, you know, all the way back to 1980, I was the head football coach at a junior college in 1980. And I had come out of Oklahoma high school football at the time. And I knew full well what strength and conditioning was all about. You know, I majored in theology, anatomy, that kind of stuff. Sure. And uh, so I was running my own strength program at the junior college. Right. Which mirrored your, what you, you know, began to do for us at East Carolina, which was one half step away from hell. (laughs) It was tough. Yeah, I mean, it was tough. What I did with those kids was tough. It was always loving, but it was very tough. But then I went to the University of Tulsa from Hutchison Junior College and ran into Ronnie Jones. And Ronnie Jones was mimicking very closely what I had been doing at Hutchison Junior College. And so we hit it off immediately. Right. And uh, one thing led to another. Your name came up when, uh, when I got to East Carolina and the strength coach position came up. I called Ronnie and I said, Ronnie. I want somebody just like you, only not quite as crazy. (laughs) (laughs) And he said, I got just the guy for you. So anyway, that's how that all came about. And there was a little bit of hand to God that, uh, you know, just all of a sudden that guy from Nebraska didn't get the job through a technicality. Right. And so, lo and behold, here we go. And the rest is history. Right.
1: That's right. And the thing is, uh, of course, Huxtable told me that story when I got there and so forth. And I was familiar with the guy. And uh, so, uh, you know, the thing I didn't realize was I was going to have to teach three phys ed classes every morning. That's why I needed a master's degree. So fortunately, I just had finished my master's at Bucknell. Yeah. And, uh, (laughs) you know, training 450 athletes in 5000 square feet was one thing. But then also having to teach three phys ed classes every morning was another. So we had to we had to juggle a lot of things, you know. I, I think on the first show, I talked about the Oklahoma State coach who just signed for a million dollars, the first million-dollar strength coach now. <laughs> and uh, you know, I signed up at ECU for thirty-five grand and uh, didn't have a didn't have a dealer car. But uh, and then Henry Van Sand took me in a weight room and he said, "You know, we just put this weight room in and it's the best on the East Coast." Yeah, <laughs> and I said, "Well, Henry, I love you, man, but I looked at the weight room. I said, this is nice, Henry, but you know, I don't think you've seen many weight rooms on the East Coast.' No, uh, but uh,
0: we got it I- done
1: in five thousand square feet somehow. You know, we had to. We uh, I had one full time assistant. I think two GAs. My GAs made three fifty a month, and uh, you know, we still had the same number of athletes that they have today. You know, about four hundred fifty kids. Uh, in fact, they might even have less today. So, oh, yeah.
0: Uh, yeah. But, well, um, I can. I can relate to all that, you know, the money yeah. aspect of it that that is thrown around these days is to you, to our generation, is somewhat mind boggling. No doubt, and, uh, you know, uh, I, I just know that uh, I made more money as a quarterback coach in the NFL. I made more money as the offensive coordinator at Boston College per year than I ever made as a head coach at East Carolina for 10 years. So, you know, so everybody at East Carolina was pregnant on that issue. You know, uh, we all could have gone possibly, probably a, a lot of places for more money. And, uh, you know, some people chose to stay, some people chose to leave. And I understood all of it, you know, staying, leaving didn't matter. Um, My motivation for staying, quite honestly, was my family. Uh, As you know, I had two boys that got heavily invested in the baseball culture in Greenville, which is huge. And both my boys ended up playing college baseball. And I've never regretted one minute of it, you know, because they basically went to school from K through 12 in Greenville. Oh, yeah. Which in the coaching profession is unheard of. Right. And, uh, so, you know, uh, I've got some monetary regrets because I did turn down a lot of money three different times. Uh, but at the same time, my two boys were rock solid and, uh, they had great careers. Uh, so anyway, there's a given to get to all that, I guess.
1: Yeah. Well, you know, the best, best season ever at ECU 11 one season, do you, do you think, do you think that the, the tab for the whole staff exceeded $1 million?
0: Absolutely not. I know it didn't. I, I absolutely <laughs> know. It. Um, I know for a fact that year I was making $50,000 a year, I think. Yeah. And, uh, and I would have been the highest paid guy on the staff without question. And so, you know, you just parse that out to a bunch of thirty-five and $40,000 salaries to eight or nine other coaches. It didn't work it hit nowhere close to me, but the head coach, Bill Lewis, I'm sure Bill was probably, I think Bill was probably making $150,000 a year that year, wow. something like that. So, Incredible. but it's all kind of relative, you know, yeah. it's all kind of relative. Yeah.
1: Well, you know, I wanted to mention some things, uh, uh, in, in regard to my experience and, and our experience, of course, you know, moving into that 91 season was special in, uh, so many ways for me, uh, extremely exciting for me personally, you know, coming from Bucknell and, you know, the Friday night talks that, uh, that Bill gave were epic as one of the, uh, the things that, you know, remain meaningful to me. And, you know, the one thing that was really meaningful, of course, was his playing of that song, One Moment in Time. So, uh, you know, the reason being for me is through that 10-year period, I had so many great moments in time myself. Um, you know, and before I ask you more questions, I kind of want to go through a little bit of that. Uh, I'd first mention the airport receptions 91, particularly uh, that Syracuse reception. Uh, where I first experienced the passion of the ECU fans, you know, could hardly even get through the crowd. It was kind of unbelievable to me. Uh, and then moving through that year, culminating with uh, uh, the bus ride that I had from the airport in Kinston after the Peach Bowl, where the, the whole road was lined with people from Kinston to Greenville. So that was uh, really incredible for me and something I always remember uh, And then the challenges the next two years. And I kind of distinctly remember a home victory, uh, possibly Virginia Tech, you know, where I don't know, something just seemed to change. You know, we had the the five and six season. And, of course, Crandall gets hurt. You know, we got the two and nine season. But somewhere along the line, I I just think the Virginia Tech victory, uh, something clicked, something changed. And uh, I don't know how much you remember about that. <clears throat> you know, then we had success, made it to the Liberty Bowl and lost an extremely to an extremely talented Illinois team. And then, of course, as usual, we had to wait for a plane for three hours. Uh, that was kind of common <laughs> practice. Yeah, we were
0: last on the list. Mm-hmm. So I promise you
1: that. Henry, I think, was always trying to save a couple of dollars on the plane flights.
0: <laughs> yep.
1: God bless him. Uh, then the next year, we were 3-3, three and three and, you know, you gave that uh, run-the-table speech to the team, and that's exactly what we did. <clears throat> Ended up with that win over Stanford in the 95 Liberty Bowl, uh, which was extremely significant. <clears throat> uh, then there were a few years we played multiple teams, now considered Power 5, and had significant success. <clears throat> Uh, going back to 91, you know, we had uh, wins over Syracuse, South Carolina, Pitt, Virginia Tech, and, the, and NC State. So that was five teams that were now power five. And then moving into the, to uh, 96 with wins over Miami, South Carolina, uh, NC State. And then we sat home after eight wins, of course. And then we had to keep the team together after not going to a bowl after eight wins. And and having some significant victories. And then, of course, uh, going through that 97 season and then 98 again with six wins qualifying for a ball and still being denied and still having to keep those guys motivated. And uh, then in 1999 with West Virginia, Duke, South Carolina, Miami, and NC State, uh, you know, five more wins and, of course, four in a row at the beginning of the season. Uh, And then in 2000 with uh, Duke, Syracuse, Louisville, and then the win over Texas Tech. So, uh, you know, I just reminisce on on those things and I look at, you know, uh, kind of where the ECU program has been. My my second uh, experience with ECU, You know, one of the things that I I will always treasure is uh, in memories with my time with you is one of the things was walking to the 50-yard line and and watching you shake hands with Lou Holtz after that victory over South Carolina. (laughs) Yeah. And uh, then that 1999 ESPN Disney Disney Spirit Award because we, we put so much effort into the spirit of our team and the enthusiasm of the team and the overachievement that we had and the leadership that we had with guys on the team. And so that was such a special award, particularly after going through the hurricane experience. And of course, Leonard gave some, gave his story about that experience where his car got flooded and that was the family car. And they, the whole family had no car after the hurricane. Mm-hmm. And so he had to find a way to get through that. And then of course, seeing you being inducted into the hall of fame was, you know, that was a big deal for me is, is seeing that because of, you know, everything that you had accomplished as a head coach. And of course, uh, you know, uh, my relationship with you during that time, which I will always treasure and hold close to me. But uh, coach, I mean, you know, in 1993, you know, yeah, that was a tough season, but, you know, we played Syracuse, Washington out at Washington, South Carolina, Virginia Tech, and Kentucky in that year, you know, going, going, on the 97, you're looking at West Virginia, South Carolina, Miami, Virginia Tech, and NC State in that year. And if you look at that 10-year period that I was there, we're talking about 51 games against teams that are now Power 5, and we won 25 of those games. So we could say, "Oh, okay, when you line up against us, whoever we schedule, you know, we'll schedule those teams, and you can count on us beating half of them. Uh, to me, you know, it was just – it was a tremendous accomplishment during what I call a decade of distinction. And, and, uh, you know, I, I will always, uh, yeah, you know, that, that was, you know, probably the, uh, of course the biggest time of my life through my career is that 10 year stint that we had. And, and, you know, and actually we had out of the, those 10 years that I was there, seven bowl qualified teams you know we went to five balls, but should have went to two other balls during that time. And, uh, you know, I, I just think that I'm not really sure what people, if people really understand the challenges that you faced during that time period and what was actually accomplished. And so, uh, you, know, uh, you know, all that being said, uh, here's what I know about you. You know, your moral compass never moved from true north. I really believe that. I know it to be true. You know, you had your door closed and locked every morning, spending time in, medication with, in meditation with the Word of God. And uh, so, you know, where in your life did you become a believer and why was spiritual strength so important to you? And how do you feel it impacted
0: our success? Well, um, I have really never... Um, shared my personal testimony as I've heard so many other people do. And um, I, I haven't done that for a variety of reasons. Um, I will say this, though, that, uh, you know, I grew up in Oklahoma like you did in Pennsylvania, and it was football, football, football. That's all you did. And uh, so I footballed it from the time that I was – 10 years old, you know, eight years old, whatever it is, that when they slap a helmet on your head and here you go, right? And I'm sure the same thing happened to you in Pennsylvania. And so you start tackling people when you're eight, nine, or 10 years old. And I tackled people until I was 20. Uh, I played small college football for just one year. And at the end of that year, you know, I was I was a hot, hot shot high school quarterback in Oklahoma and led the state in scoring my junior year. Uh, That kind of, you know, experience in, you know, in fact, I've told people that my journey through high school, if you ever watch the show Friday night lights, right. That's exactly how I grew up. And that show is, is frighteningly accurate with what that culture is in Oklahoma and Texas, where I am from. And, but anyway, at the end of my, one year I played a year of college, one double a football at Emporia state in Kansas. And I was a starter as a freshman at defensive back, but it dawned on me real quick, that I was not going to play in the NFL. And uh, so when that realization hit me, you know, I quit playing football. And uh, so suddenly as all football players find out when you quit playing football, it's a shock to how much of your identity is suddenly put on a shelf. And uh, so for the, you know, my wife and I got married about that time when she was 19 and I I had just turned 20. And, uh, but I was just totally lost. But having said that, I had a real Saul of Tarsus conversion. I mean, very, very dramatic, very instantaneous. And so, you know, that's all I'll say about that. And, uh, but it gave me um, a way to move forward uh, with or without football. And so I finished my college degree. My wife and I both did. And I was simply going to be, my goal was to be a college professor and teach anatomy and physiology. And uh, I was getting my master's degree. I I had gotten my undergraduate degree, but I had to obviously fund my graduate degree. And so the only job that I could get coming out of the University of Tulsa was at a big time high school called Union High School outside of Tulsa, but the hiccup was is that I had to coach the eighth grade football team to get this job and I didn't want to coach football i hadn't I didn't want anything to do with the football I'd had a football in my hand my entire life, and uh, I had not missed football and uh but I had to have that job and so <laughs> I take this job and suddenly I'm surrounded by a bunch of eighth grade knuckleheads that I fell in love with, of course, like all good teachers do. Sure. And, you know, I coached eighth grade football for three years and then I was immediately moved up to, and again, you got to remember, this is big time 5A high school football in Oklahoma. And I was elevated to the defensive coordinator on the, on the high school staff. And so, you know, that's where that all came about you know, the football, you know, re-entering football. Um, it, was, it was very accidental. And, uh, you know, at the end of uh, two more years of coaching high school football, Jimmy Johnson was the head coach at Oklahoma State at the time and was coming in and recruiting a bunch of our players at Union High School where I was the defensive coordinator. And so I got to know Jimmy and a guy named Dave Wanstead, who a lot of people would know. He became the head coach of Chicago Bears and so on and so forth. So it wasn't long after that that Jimmy offered me a job coaching the tight ends at Oklahoma State, which I initially turned down. My wife and I had just built a brand new house out in the country and, you know, making good money, both of us teaching. I was coaching high school football, and life was great. And I woke up the next morning after turning that down. I told Laura, I said, you know, we're 23 years old and there's a whole bunch out in front that I can be perfectly happy, happy doing that the rest of my life. But I said, something's telling me I need to take this opportunity and we can always come back and get a high school coaching job.
2: Right.
0: And so, you know, we pulled the trigger, sold the house and moved into the athletic dormitory at Oklahoma <laughs> state. You can imagine that. Oh yeah. Oh my God. So You know, that's just kind of the background of where it started for me and then not knowing where in the world it might go. I do know that once I went to Oklahoma State, I was just there one year. And for the next 12 years, Laura and I moved every two years until we landed until we landed at East Carolina, which gave us a long, long run there. Well, you know, I
1: can relate, you know, she and I live in theme dorm, and then uh, we finally bought a little house for, I think 50 grand. And, and uh, she was the first female uh, water meter reader in the state of Pennsylvania. So uh, we'll always remember that experience. <laughs>
0: <laughs> you do what you got to do, man. <laughs> uh,
1: that's right. So uh, I want to ask you also, you know, you always mention the seasons of life, uh, to me. And I know that, uh, you did some study with that. Of course, that's in Ecclesiastes uh, pretty extensively. With, uh,
0: you know, speak to that for a minute. Well, the, you know, there's a great book that I read um, while I was the head coach at East Carolina. I was always l- reading, uh, as you know, as you know, Jeff, I, I mean, I was heavily, heavily, heavily involved in the X's and O's and designing the offense and calling the plays. And uh, once I had uh, like Todd Berry, and then I had Doug Martin, guys that were really creative, smart offensive coaches. Once I ingrained them into my offense, I began to let go and let them, you know, express themselves through the offense. And what it allowed me to do is to really, 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 investigate and research leadership. And as you know, um, leadership, you can skin a cat 10,000 ways as a leader. You can do it like George Patton and just blunt force trauma, everybody around you. And there's a way in which that can work. You can be uh, a calm behind the scenes leader, let's say like Tony Dungy, who never raised his voice that I know of. And I've asked a lot of people that have worked, you know, with Tony Dungy, uh, as they won championships in the national football league, you know, there there's that kind of guy that can lead. And so we all develop our own style depending upon our personality. But anyway, there was a particular book I read and it was called the seven seasons of a man's life. And I read that I'm guessing 1991, two, three, right in there. And it, it talked about, uh, you know, a young man's journey into any profession. There's the experiential part where you really don't know what you're doing and you got to learn by experience. There comes the point, the second season, I think, and I'm talking off the top of my head here. The second part of that was, okay, now you know what you're doing and you're fairly proficient. The third part was becoming a master at your craft, so on and so forth. Up until about the sixth season was that of mentorship. Okay. And this, this is the 50-year-old guy that has been successful and knows what he's doing. Well, what do you do with your life? Well, you grab a hold of a 25-year-old and mentor them. In a holistic fashion, not just being an electrician, if that happens to be your profession or a plumber or a coach, not just the profession, but, you know, handling life and life's issues. And so, you know, as I entered into my 50s and and really the probably the last five to six years as a head coach at East Carolina. I was really into a leadership mentorship role and not so much the Xs and Os although I had my hand on that constantly I mean that was my lifeline to stay employed and so you know I never let go of that but at the same time I had guys that were really really good and creative and kept kept all of us employed by scoring points right so uh but yeah you know this I would encourage anybody and I, I distinctly remember the name of that book. It was called "The Seven Seasons of a Man's Life," and I would recommend that to anybody. It's 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 a, a deep dive, and it makes total perfect sense to anybody. And and you'll recognize what season you happen to be in when you read that book. And so you know, I it made an impact on me, and uh, as much as anything, it identified. Um who you might be at any given time and where you might be on your journey at any given time.
1: Well, I hope it's still in print because there's going to be a rush on after people hear this podcast. <laughs>
0: I'm sure. I'm, I'm sure. I'm sure it is still in print. I, yeah. Again, you know, the, I, I really did. I became fascinated with leadership. Um, right. And, and I, I remember Bill McCartney. I worked for Bill at Colorado university. And Bill and I had a very explosive relationship. He was, uh, Bill was, uh, and uh, it's hard to explain, but Bill would beat you to death if you let him. And I watched him do that to several assistant coaches on the Colorado staff. About the second day I was at Colorado, he said something very offensive to me in a beat down fashion. And I came up out of my chair in a staff meeting and confronted him immediately. And it shocked the whole room. And Bill and I became very close in an antagonistic way. But Bill and I developed this odd, odd relationship. Um, And I loved him and he loved me. Bill had an IQ of probably, I'm guessing 140. He was the, his, his IQ, his intellect was off the charts. His emotional, you know, he was, he was passionate and emotional almost to the point of out of control. And that's where he would beat people up emotionally around him with the exception of me. And I, I'm just telling you, that's the way it was. But I, gotta, I said all that to say this. One day, Bill and I were talking. He came down to Houston. I was carrying him around as the head coach, and we were recruiting. And he said to me, he said, Steve, this, this coaching thing, he said, you're really, really, really into the X's and O's. But I'm just telling you, it's all about leadership. And I can remember that moment he said that to me. And I had a bunch of bells go off in my head. And mm-hmm. I've never forgotten it. And he was 101% correct. Wow. You you really don't need any X's and O's. It helps if you've got them. But you can be a great, particularly collegiate head coach with zero X's and O's. Because you can go buy the X's and O's if you just hire a hot shot offensive coordinator, defense coordinator. Yeah. Yeah. But the guy, the guy at the top of that pyramid, but I've said this before, the, the primo de primo is a guy like Nick Saban. He's got all the X's and O's and the leadership. Right. So he's never vulnerable. A guy like, let's say, Mac Brown. Okay. And I'm sure this will go viral when I say it, but I don't really care. Mac doesn't know X's and O's. Mac's a good leader and he's a real good recruiter. Okay, that, that's leadership in and of itself too. Okay, but Mac has to have the proper offensive coordinator with him and certainly the defense coordinator, like any offensive coach has to have. I had to have a great defense coordinator with me. Right. I didn't pretend to know defense. I had to hire it. But anyway, all the way back to leadership, 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 and there wasn't, in fact, right over my left shoulder is a bookcase full of books and I used to go to the library or the bookstores and just go to the leadership section and buy six of them. I didn't even care. I just bought six books <laughs> and I would read them. And I, I began to tell like my sons, you know, I'd give them a book and say, read this. But the point isn't that this whole book is going to give you anything. It's just that that whole book may give you one little bitty thing that makes it a valuable book and right. that because all of those books, after I begin to read them and read them and read them, they all say the same thing, but there's a different angle to this guy, that guy, the other guy, Abraham Lincoln, how he did it. Um, George Patton. Okay. How did he do Bobby Knight? Uh, you know, and down the list, it doesn't matter, but all of those guys that were successful in any field, any given field, How did they do it? How did they lead the people around them? And you can do it by beating them to death. You can do it by loving them to death. My particular style ended up more on the loving end, but I was certainly able, capable, and willing to beat you to death if it took that. Right. And, you know, my favorite quote out of all of that was "And the leadership style that I would like to have been identified with was have a steel hand with a velvet glove.
2: Mm.
0: And that's, I think that would apply to what it was. I was doing, everybody knew there was a line you didn't cross in our program, but it never, I don't think anybody could ever accuse us of having a beat down culture. Right. Right we were always loving and I say us because it was us it was you it was me it was Doug Martin and Todd Berry and Chuck Pagano and just all the names that can roll off of both of our tongues that a lot of them are in the NFL and went to the NFL and right. great coaches we you know god sent me incredible guys to help run that lunatic bin you know <laughs> yeah. and and he did and yeah but that's You know, I I think every one of them Mm. would say that coming into our program as a player or a coach, you know what? That was a lot of fun coming to work every day.
1: Really was. There was
0: pressure. There was pressure. We had to win. I get all that. But I don't think that anybody ever came to work and wondered, I wonder what Steve Logan's going to be like today. Yeah. You know, and that that's what I resented about, let's say, Bill McCartney. Everybody would walk in the door and it was like, oh, my God, what's going to happen today? Because his leadership style was create a crisis, which and listen, he won a national championship now doing that. So I want to continue to clarify through the conversation. I'm not being critical. I'm just talking about my journey and what I accepted, what I rejected, what I embraced what I discarded from all of my, I worked for Jimmy Johnson and there were things about him that I did not embrace and rejected. I took a few things from him. Uh, I took a few things from Bill McCartney and rejected a few, a lot of things. Um, I took a few things from uh, Bill Lewis and rejected a lot of it. Um, I, I, embraced a whole bunch of things from John Cooper, who I worked for at the university of Tulsa, who later became the head coach at Ohio state. I embraced a whole bunch of John Cooper right, and, re- and rejected a little bit of that. But anyway, the leadership thing, as you know, I'm sure, you know, strength coaches that go about their job, totally different than what you did. But guess what? They, they really get good results. Yeah. And that's all that matters in, in the football culture. I'm um, sad to say, but that's all that matters. You, you got to win. You got to win the next yeah. game.
1: Yeah. Yep. Well, you know, get a chance sometime, check out the 14 Marine Corps principles. I think it is it's uh, JJ did tie buckle. Those are the uh, first letters of all the uh, leadership principles of the Marine Corps. So uh, get a chance, check that out sometime.
0: Well, you yeah. know, it's interesting you say that because of course I've read You know, I don't know about your father, but my father was a World War II veteran. And uh, at the age of 22, he went to the Philippines and fought Japanese hand to hand for 36 straight months. Mm. And so I was raised like you were raised. It was like, hey, get the job done. No excuses. Right. And so, you know, people can criticize that if they want. But I'm just telling you that, you know, the leadership thing is somewhat It's inbred into your DNA, depending on how you were raised. And uh, again, there's just so many ways to do it. But what I was going to say is that uh, I'm still studying leadership because it, it fascinates me. So I'm retired and I don't coach. But here recently, I have become fascinated with anything I can read or watch on the Navy SEALs. Because you know those guys, first of all, they're not human. They're they're a different cut of cloth, and to make it through the training, they make it through is uh, it's a miracle that anybody could make it through that training. But anyway, the principles they use and the way they go about their business, all of that can be put into a football locker room without question. Not not quite as intense, but the principles. Absolutely. You know, so I'm I'm right there with you. The Marines, uh, anything in the military is applicable to leadership, certainly football. Football, as we know, is the crappiest, dirtiest sport you could ever get involved in. It hurts. You know, it's no fun to practice. Basketball's fun to practice. Baseball's yeah. fun to practice, tennis is fun to practice, you know. <laughs> The only thing I can relate football to is wrestling, which I know you were involved in wrestling, right? Wrestling is a brutal, tough sport to be good at and football is the same way, but you know, all of those, uh, the toughness aspect, um, cannot be overlooked or overcoached in the sport of football, or you're going to get beat. You're going to get beat badly.
1: Right. Well, uh, Second thing I know to be true, uh, we hated to lose people, Uh, you know, not necessarily for the good of the team, but for the good of the young man. And uh, I know you were constantly educating the teams to follow team rules, getting an education, never neglect your spiritual life. You know, you even went as far as to organize uh, functions at hotels to keep the players out of the clubs downtown. And, you know, now added to those challenges are is the uh, transfer portal. Uh, so, yeah, will this forever be an issue uh, with college football? And, uh, you know, of course, that's a rhetorical question. But, you know,
0: what are your thoughts on that? Well, my first thought, uh, and by the way, you remember Todd Berry. Right. Uh, was my offensive coordinator. Todd and I grew up together back in Oklahoma. And uh, Todd Berry is now the. American football coaches association president. And he has been for the last five, six, seven years. He he announced his retirement coming up in the next two years, I think. Okay. But I talk with Todd a lot and Todd and I talked about this whole thing. And, uh, my first reaction to that transfer portal and all that other stuff. Um, I think for the player, it's probably a good thing. I also know that God absolutely took care of Steve Logan by removing me from college football before that came about because (laughs) I could, I could not, I mean, Jeff, the only way that the East Carolina model that we put together was identify talent, not, not talent, identify future talent, bring it in, Feed it, nurture it, develop it, and then put it on the football field after usually 24 months. I mean, nobody, I mean, very few people have ever debriefed me on our program. But when we signed a class of 25 freshmen, none of those kids were ever put on the field. Now, that's not much of an overstatement. I can remember Troy Smith played as a freshman. We had a little uh, young offensive lineman from DC Pumi Masamini that played as a freshman that ironically transferred out at the end of his first year. But I can count on one hand, the number of freshmen that ever played for us because the whole thing was development, develop, develop, develop. Okay. And so we could go find Lamont Burns. There's a name come flying to you out of the closet. Yeah. Lamont Burns, I found Lamont Burns at six foot four, 205 pounds. I had driven to Winston-Salem to watch another young man play a high school football game. I was was all by myself. I drove all the way to Winston-Salem to watch a Friday night football game. I got up in the stands. Nobody knew I was there. The opening kickoff, I watched a long, tall young man run down the field and make a tackle, come back to the bench, and stand there for the rest of the football game and not play any football that night. So I proceeded to break every NCAA rule. At the time, I walked down out of the stands, went up to Lamont Burns on the field after the game, and I said, come here. What's your name? Lamont Burns. Why are you not playing? He said, the coach doesn't like me. I said, okay, give me your phone number. He did, and I never said another word because I knew if anybody knew I was talking to him, everybody would begin to recruit him, even though he hadn't played. yeah. On national signing, the day before national signing day, I called Lamont and his family. and I said, we're going to sign you to a full scholarship. He didn't even know what I was talking about because I would barely had any communication with him. But the point I'm making there is we bring Lamont Burns in. Hey, Lamont, 6'4", 205, go to the weight room. At the end of one year, he weighed about 225. He came out as a redshirt freshman. I put him at tight end. Guess what? He couldn't catch anything. I didn't know that, but now I do. All right? Go back to the weight room. He came back out at 250. Hey, Lamont, go to linebacker. Couldn't tackle anybody. Okay, Lamont, go back to the weight room. He comes back at about 290. Yeah. And we put him at defensive tackle. He could not get off of a block ever. This is year three. And where's the last stop before the bus stop offensive line. Yeah. I gave Lamont to Jeff Jagosinski who later became the head coach at Boston college, offensive coordinator for the green Bay Packers. There's another guy that God blessed me with, but anyway, there's Lamont. I said, Jags, take this guy, whatever Lamont plays right guard for us for the next two years and blocks everybody and goes and plays three years for the New York jets. And so if that was today, Lamont's third year at East Carolina, he would have come out and everybody would have found him on film. Then they would have called him. And then they would have said, Lamont, what are you doing at East Carolina? Come play at Ole Miss. right? And you can't blame the kid. He's going to go, particularly if they give him a name, image, and likeness deal to, to where he can put some money in the bank. And yeah. so, you know, this is where the developmental programs – like East Carolina always has been, whether one admit it or not. I don't know where they're going to go. The only the only uh, positive I can come up with is there's going to be a kid, let's say at I don't know, uh, Ole Miss, and he's not getting to play, and he transfers down to East Carolina. Now East Carolina gets a pretty good football player for East Carolina's level. But as far as building a program, I mean, all the things that we used to do the, in today's climate, the fabric would have been constantly being ripped apart. And about the time we would have developed Lamont burns of which Lamont is just an example of literally hundreds of players through the nineties, hundreds. Okay. that that would not have finished their career with us. I mean, think about Rod Coleman. Well, how about Dwayne Ledford? Dwayne Ledford, Rod. I mean, yeah. you and right. I, you know, could sit here and just name after name after name after name that ended up playing in the NFL. Yeah. E- either a little bit or a lot. We would have never seen the tail end of their careers. They would have been gone so fast. And that, would have run me out of the profession without question. Well, it would have run me out of East Carolina and it would have run me where I actually ended up, which is in the NFL where all of that monkey business would have had no impact. You know, the recruiting and, you know, I'm jumping subjects here, but moving into professional football for me was extremely liberating and good for me. It was real good for me because suddenly I was responsible for making sure that my particular student executed his responsibilities on Sunday and that's it. I didn't care if they got a machine gun and blew up the McDonald's. I didn't care what they did, when they did it. I just made sure, or they had to make sure that they were in my six 30 or seven o'clock AM meeting every day. They had to make sure they knew their assignments. They had to show up on Sunday. They had to play well or they would get cut. And that's a beautiful, wonderful way to live relative to all that junk that you and I are just talking about transfer right. recruiting NIL agreements. I mean, I, I again, I think God really took care of Steve Logan by making sure I wasn't any part of that.
1: Uh, do, do you think that uh, NFL Europe was probably the most gratifying as far as uh, observing intrinsic senses of motivation within the players?
0: NFL Europe was this. If, if NFL Europe was still um, functional, that's exactly where I'd be. That's exactly what I'd be doing. Yeah, It was the most pure form of football that there ever could be. Because uh, I was there to develop a highly motivated, highly talented young man. And I got to go to work every day in Europe um, with young men that um, would do anything and were hungry for any knowledge I could impart to help them improve their game. And, uh, you know, so... I, I, it was the best three years of my life. And, uh, we won, we happened to have won 26 out of 30 football games in three years. And, uh, we were, we had a good plan. Uh, the men that I was with, the coaches that I was with, uh, two of my three quarterbacks were NFL Europe player of the year. Um, I, I just had so much success and fun with the young men that, uh, were sent to me. Um, so, you know, I, I, I was heartbroken when that thing fell apart, but it, at the same time, it sent me to Boston college and I got to work with Matt Ryan, which yeah. uh, that's a godsend that everybody should have that opportunity because there was n- nothing like that particular experience for me in my career. Um, he, he was he was and is uh, the most fascinating football player I've ever been around in my life. Mm-hmm. And I've been around some unbelievable ones. But, uh, but anyway, uh, yeah, the NFL Europe thing was great. The NFL was great in its own way. Right. You know, so, um, you know, leaving East Carolina for me was liberating, very liberating. I would still be there. Had I not been asked to leave because I, I still was enjoying the David and Goliath journey, which is what East Carolina is. Um, but, you know, the, the journey I had after that was uh, really, yeah. really, really a lot of fun Sure, and, and really, really intellectual. It was an intellectual uh, pursuit. You know, the, the intelligence, the coaches you're around in pro football, uh, the players you're around in pro football are so highly intelligent and so highly motivated. It ups your game. You better show up every day. You can't show up every day in pro football as a coach and not have something that doesn't stimulate the young man or he will not participate with you. Right. You know, so. It sharpens your pencil big time. And it did that for me.
1: Well, I, you know, I really, I really believe that God had a plan for me when I was forced to leave there. So I mean, it's it's been a blessing to me because I could basically uh, get healthy again, for one thing, uh, get back in shape, get healthy, spend some time with my wife, go on vacations. Uh, you know, it's when you talk about something being liberating, it's been totally liberating for me. So, uh, I feel you there for sure.
0: Yeah. uh, Yeah. uh,
1: So, you know, every coach that comes in a program says they want to change the culture. And, uh, you know, the definition of culture, if you look it up, is customs, arts, and social institutions. Uh, uh, I don't know if there's somewhere a revised definition for athletics, but – you know, help me understand this. Did, did Clarence Stasovich establish the culture? Did Pat die? Did we recapture it and build on it? Uh, uh, was it established in 1932 when they started football at ECU? I mean, you know, uh, you know, how, how would you prioritize the requirements in 2022 for a vibrant culture, you know, building one in, in collegiate football? I mean, I, you know, I just kind of scratch my head sometimes, you know, every coach that comes in, you know, needs to change the culture. So has
0: East Carolina had a culture? Well, when I got to East Carolina, I recognized uh, the uniqueness of it from this standpoint. Uh, I was in the state of North Carolina and everybody was basketball, 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 but in Greenville, and uh, Eastern North Carolina, there was this bubble of football. And I recognized that, as I'm sure you did, coming from a football culture in Pennsylvania, as I did from Oklahoma. I saw, hey, you know, these people like football more than basketball.
2: Yeah.
0: And, and they still do. Um, so, you know, that's one of the things that uh, when I recognized it, and I recognized it really quickly, uh, I thought, you know, there's a chance for this place to to make a dent, which we did in the 90s, you know, uh, because football mattered. And I felt like it mattered more in eastern North Carolina than it did at, let's say, North Carolina State, University of North Carolina, Duke, and Wake Forest. And at the time, it did matter more. And I'm going to You know, where I'm headed now is, is that the thing that disrupted all of that and what disrupted the growth of East Carolina football was the 1998 adjudication of the B.C.S. When the bowl championship series came about. I recognized immediately what had happened to me personally. Our program in general and East Carolina in particular. And I knew and recognized it as the end of anything representing a level playing field. And people, in, you know, at the tail, we began to struggle in 19, no, in 2000 and 2001 there were a couple of things going on at the time, 2000, 2001, I was developing a young quarterback that was going to uh, bring us back to being pretty good. You know, David Gard was graduating. And so, uh, you know, the next year we were playing football uh, without David, without a quarterback, but also what had happened is in 1998, we began to lose recruits in Eastern North Carolina to Wake Forest NC State and Duke and places like that, that we would normally not lose that kid. But guess what? Those recruiters from those schools were going in and explaining to the young men, hey, East Carolina's not in the Bowl Championship series. You can never compete for a national championship. Now, of course, North Carolina State, North Carolina, and Wake are never going to compete for a national championship anyway, but at least they had that label. And I saw our recruiting drop off dramatically, particularly on the defensive side of the football. And I knew that it was something that uh, offensively, I felt like you, offensively, you can manufacture points. Defensively, you can't manufacture stops. You have got to have talent, period. Right. And that, that's a matter of fact. And you look back when we were good, we had Travis Darden, Norris McCleary, Rod Coleman, you name it. I'm naming off NFL football players for you there, okay? And, oh, yeah. and you look back at, at the year 2000, which is when things fell completely off the cliff because of recruiting. And it wasn't because we quit recruiting, which was the um, critique attached to me. I said, well, Steve quit recruiting. No, I lost any ability to talk to a young man on a play on a level playing field. They weren't going to come to East Carolina. And of course I was correct. I was absolutely on point. When I began to explain to the leadership at East Carolina, things have changed and we we're not on a level playing field anymore. And they, they saw that as me making excuses. Everybody now can look back and say, you know what? Logan was right. Because, East Carolina no longer plays on the playing field that you and I were coaching on, and they never will again. It's it's a two tiered level now: BCS, non-BCS. That's just the way it is. And so you might rise up and have a pretty good football team, but you're not going to sustain it like we did through the '90s. Right. So you know, uh, I, I've somewhat lost where I was headed, but I'm I'm just telling you. Those were the experiences of the tail end of that journey,
1: right? Well, uh, yeah. I mean, I guess it's you know a little disappointing to me to see it's kind of like almost uh, you know you see Cincinnati and you know and Houston and these programs you know moving up and and you know with experience that we had through the nineties. I, I would have thought at some point that, you know, East Carolina would have been one of those schools, you know? And, well,
0: uh, well, see, I, and I can say this now and I didn't say it then, you know, what we were talking about leadership, right? When we were one of the very best football programs on the East coast and in the Southeast, in 1994, 95, 96, 99, 2000, all those years, it was a lack of leadership that failed to get East Carolina in the Big East yeah, or pick a conference. It doesn't matter. But Virginia Tech's leadership got them into the ACC, and before that happened, everybody would have told you it would have been a cold day in hell before Virginia tech got into the ACC. Yeah. But they had leadership. Somebody in a leadership position, got the job done. And so guess what, Bill McCartney, it's leadership, leadership, leadership. And that's where East Carolina's leadership failed. It wasn't, it wasn't the football that failed. It was the leadership of the university that failed to, to make, to, Twist the arms, bribe, cheat, steal, whatever it took to get the legislature to move East Carolina into or get one of those conferences, particularly the Big East. That's what it was to take us. You know, I talked to to Frank Beamer about his journey at uh, Virginia Tech, and you can relate to this. Virginia Tech and East Carolina in 1989, 1990, 1991, 1992, and 1993 were exactly the same universities. Identical. Yep. Virginia Tech got into the Big East. East Carolina got left out. Frank Beamer told me personally, he said the moment he got in the Big East, the living rooms that he could get into to recruit changed overnight, just like that. And you saw what Virginia Tech looked like in 1994. And then when we went to show up and played them again in 1996, they trotted an NFL football team out on the field in 1996. Right. Everything changed. And so, again, uh, you know, I'm just kind of wandering around, babbling about my remembrances of the journey. But uh, leadership, leadership. Yeah. Presidents, board of trustees uh legislators, uh I don't know who they were, but they failed. And they right. failed miserably. <laughs> and and it continues to slop onto the East Carolina <clears throat> journey yeah. to this day.
1: Yeah, and I'm kind of wondering around Ironwood With Golf the- Club, uh, you know, just scratching my head about, you know, well, when did Charlotte start football? When did UAB start football? When when did uh San Antonio start football and I you know and and then I'm thinking about, well, East Carolina started football in 1932. So it doesn't make a whole lot of sense to me. But what do I know? You know, so.
0: Yeah, it's leadership. But it's it's, it's leadership, the highest levels. I'm talking presidents, uh, boards of trustees, legislators. Uh, you know, I was told, Frank Beamer told me that in the legislature of Virginia, when that whole a shakeup began about the dissolution of the big East and the ACC was going to expand. Right. That the legislators in Virginia went to the ACC and said, guess what? You're not going to get the university of Virginia to continue in the ACC unless you take Virginia tech. That's leadership. Okay. And guess what? The ACC didn't want Virginia tech, but they got them. Yeah. And so, where was anybody in the North Carolina legislature saying, hey, ACC, you're not going to get North Carolina anymore unless you take East Carolina. Well, you know, you say, well, that'll never happen. Well, it didn't happen. and But it did in Virginia. You see what I'm saying? That, right. those, are the, those are the leadership issues that nobody really wants. They, they always um, want to talk about the head football coach. Well, th- those are out of the realm of the head football coach. I didn't have anything to do with that. Yeah. I had no. I had no influence here. I, the only thing I could do was win the next football game, which we did a whole lot of. We had we had a very proud, competitive, recognized football program. I felt like we did okay. our part. Yep. But the people above me didn't. They failed magnificently, and therefore, you've got East Carolina <clears throat> doing what East Carolina does now, which is they go play whoever they're playing yeah. and it's fun and it's interesting but it's it's not going to be for anything significant yeah sadly enough that's a sad that's a sad tale
1: well uh i'm not sure how much time i have <laughs> i'm new at this but uh, i just want to kind of i guess i got to wrap it up but uh, i just want to ask you this you know uh How's grandfather life been treating you and, uh, you know, do those kids know how to fish and play the guitar yet? Or, you know, I mean, how much, uh, I know you're having
0: fun with your, your grandkids. Uh, tell us a little bit about that. Well, I've got four of them. They're 10, seven, six, and four. And, uh, two boys and two girls. And I'm tough as hell on all four of them and have yeah. more fun. Uh, in fact, I'll just share this one story with you. The little seven-year-old girl, lives in South Raleigh. So I've got my hands all over her all the time. I call her Scooter. And uh, all four of my grandchildren know that they're not allowed to whine or show pain around pop. (laughs) So every time they stub their toe or any of that monkey business, you know, they'll start that, you know, what kids do. And I'll go, no, 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 no. Rub dirt on it. Well, my daughter-in-law, the mother of Scooter, which is Nate's wife, called me one day and said I just want you to know that Aaron May who I call Scooter Aaron May fell off her bike she is right now at the end of the driveway her elbow is bleeding and she's rubbing dirt on it <laughs> <laughs> I, so I told Stephanie I said well my job is done then so <laughs> but I have a ball with all of them and uh, it's very gratifying watching uh, my two boys go through the hell of parenthood. And uh, but my job now is to when the grandchildren want to burn the house down, I supply the matches and uh, we just have a good time all day.
1: That's awesome.
0: Yeah, it's a lot of fun. Bo's got one coming in
1: November. So Michelle's through the moon. We got cribs in our house, diapers already and everything. So uh,
0: oh, yeah. it it's undefeated, man. You'll have more fun. You know, raising your own children is very intense and, uh, as, as any parent knows, but raising and helping raise grandchildren is nothing but fun and funny. (laughs) I just, I don't do anything but laugh at those knuckleheads. There's not much I can do to upset me. So it's, it's really a payback, a wonderful payback. Well, coach,
1: maybe sometime you can get me back out there with Brian Goodwin, uh, I'm assuming you still fish with him a little bit.
0: I do a little bit. I fish. I've got several people at the coast. I live at the coast about 70% of the time. Right. And uh, I'm on a boat a lot. And when I'm not on a boat, I'm on the tennis court. But uh, yeah, I do a lot of fishing. And, uh, you know, the Crystal Coast is, it is a slice of heaven, a slice of paradise. I stay down there a lot. I really enjoy it
1: we still got our spot down there and, uh, it's, uh, there's not much land left. So I'm, no, I'm, I'm kind of amazed at uh, you know, the value now. So, uh, you know, it's well,
0: anything down there is worth a million dollars right now. So hang on to it, buddy. <laughs>
1: <laughs> well, coach, I'm going to go ahead and, and sign off here. And, uh, I just really appreciate you coming on spending time. And, uh, I think, you know, how I feel about you and how I always feel about you. And, and so, uh, uh, thanks a lot. I really appreciate it. Uh, this is Jeff Connor signing off for Absolute Empowerment and, and armoredlife.org dot uh, org. Remember that the power of Jesus can break every stronghold in your life. If you need a mentor or someone to pray with, please fill out the form on the home page of armoredlife.org dot org and send it. Uh, God bless and thanks for listening in. So uh, thanks a lot, Coach.
0: Well, thank you, Jeff, and. Uh... I hope you have a good run with your program and uh, we'll see you down at the beach. Hopefully.
1: Okay. Thanks a lot. Take care.
0: Yeah, man. You've been listening to absolute empowerment with coach Jeff Connors on the sports objective. Join us every Monday night for a new edition of the show. Listen to the show pretty much everywhere podcasts are found. Be sure to follow us on social media at The Sports OBJ on Twitter and TikTok, at The Sports Objective on Instagram. Like and follow our Facebook page and subscribe to our YouTube channel. As always, we appreciate you listening to the show. And go, Pirates!